The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. It's nice to be with you again today. Absolutely. It's been a good week. Good. We don't talk about a, a happy subject matter, but I think it's something that we have to talk about, so might as well enjoy it while we do it. I guess so. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not the happiest of topics, but on the flip side... We're offering a solution. You know, I think too many people speak about addiction and say, there's this problem and it's terrible. And there's this problem and it's awful. And oh my God, there's this problem and no one offers solutions. That's right. So at least we're offering some sort of solution to what's going on because, you know, it's getting worse. Yep. Um, yep. However, I did come across one piece of good news this week. Tell me. There is a Massachusetts town that's actually reporting decreases in overdoses really really Uh what are they doing to do that it's interesting they have developed two tasks for task forces um one of which is with the local police and what they're doing is instead of basically criminalizing the addicts and saying oh we caught you with drugs you're going to jail or we caught you doing this to get your drugs you're going to jail they push them into rehabilitation instead of incarceration interesting well i mean if you look at it when people get arrested and they go to jail, it's just like you're slapped with a punishment. Even though you have this huge problem that led you to whatever got you in trouble, right? they just put you in jail. And in jail, I think it's less, well, I'd say a very low percentage of people that go to jail actually get substance abuse treatment. Right. They just get locked in a cell, get you know, get their punishment, do their time and leave only to probably return because they... um. They haven't had any treatment. Instant and, withdrawal. Oh, I mean, they yeah. go into instant withdrawal. Yeah. I mean, they have all this stuff. Um, and they honestly learn how to be better addicts and better criminals while in jail. <laughs> and so it doesn't really do them any good to just like get locked up. With The important thing is that if an addict does something illegal, which a lot of addicts do illegal things to get, you know, to get their drugs, or, I mean, if you look at it, doing <laughs> doing drugs is illegal. Right. Um. They're gonna, they're, you know, they're gonna do illegal things. They're gonna end up in jail. the re- The realistic solution is to get them drug treatment so that the criminal activity ceases. Yeah, that makes and, sense. Makes more sense than just putting them in jail. And too few places do this. And so this uh, town in Massachusetts, which is named Worcester, um, enacted this, and they've seen a decrease in their in their wow. opioid overdoses. Wow. Which is really cool. Okay, so if anybody with law enforcement is listening to this podcast, take note of what Worcester, Massachusetts is doing so that maybe you could implement the same thing in your town. I have to also tell the people who listen that sometimes if they hear you chuckle and they don't know why you're chuckling, it's because I'm making a face at you, like I did a little bit ago. Or it's <laughs> because can't I see my face. Or it's because I've said something that to me in my head is so like a lot of addictions, some of the things that come up are like absurd. Right. And they'll make me chuckle a little bit because it's like, you know, I went through it and going through addiction isn't a laughing matter. There's nothing funny right. about going through addiction. There's nothing funny about someone's family member going through addiction. Since I've come out the other side of it, I can look back on some of these things and, and realize how absurd a lot of it is. And some, sometimes I'll chuckle based on the absurdity uh-huh. of a fact that I've just given or an anecdote that I've just told. Right. Because of the absurdity of it. Because you can see it now. Well, I can see it in a different light. You right. Know, when you're going through addiction, it's like this really large, like large, dark, lonely place mm-hmm. is what the world becomes for you. 
And so you don't see anything for what it is right. when you're going through it. Right. And so it takes <laughs> it takes coming out the other side to uh, be able to look at it in a different perspective. And in that different perspective, sometimes it does make me chuckle because some of the stuff is absolutely ridiculous. I think I think that makes total sense. I have speaking of absurd, maybe this isn't absurd, but I was um, talking to some people last night about the podcast, and I was talking about you know I said so if you know anybody, these were just random people at an event I was at. So I said if you know anybody that's dealing with addiction, and the fellow said that his niece's son is addicted to video gaming. That's a that, that's a real thing. And I, but I didn't know how to address it. I mean, they're not going to go to Narcanon. What do you do if you're I mean, I guess they could, but what would uh, what do you do with someone like that? I'm, I'm the, putting I'm you a, on the spot. Well, I know. I'm I, I've been asked this question because sometimes I get phone calls at the center for people who are addicted to things other, other than drugs. Yeah, like sex or what have you, yeah. Yeah, and video games are another one of those almost escapist type of drugs for people. Interesting. And so here, my definition of a drug obviously is a drug is essentially a poison and a little bit is act, acts as a stimulant. Too much acts as a depressant and a little too much will kill you. Right. However, another definition that I have for a drug other than it being a substance and a poison and something that will, you know, essentially kill you is any, anything that you take or you do that causes a drastic alteration in your mood or in your mind that causes your life to be unmanageable and that you continuously use this behavior or use this substance despite adverse consequences you receive because of it. Okay. Does that make sense? No, it makes total sense. So a person will use a video game essentially the same way they would use any any drug. Right. And they might have a completely mismanaged life everything's crumbling beneath them you know and uh they keep getting consequences for it and they can't stop right just like heroin or cocaine right or whatever so video games can be hugely addictive but narconon wouldn't take somebody like that no. you're not really I set mean, up to do that. focuses specifically on substance abuse um, because you know the first two steps of the program deal with purging your body and getting rid of the toxins. I mean, we're right. not going to like... You may get some toxin from your computer screen, but it's not something... I we can't really get that out. Yeah. Um, we're not yeah. going to sweat the video games out of you. Right. Um, but I am a firm, belie- a firm believer that Narconon can work for anybody addicted to anything. And basically by using the objectives course and the life skills courses, we can get to the core root of why a person's doing what they're doing and then figure out how they can live life and handle life and, and do the things they need to do and be responsible and to live a fulfilling life without the use of video games or drugs or whatever. Um, unfortunately, our policies are that, you know, you have to be addicted to drugs. Right. But yeah, you can definitely be addicted to video games. I mean, tons of kids are. Tons of kids are. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. And it also makes sense to me that it is, it has, it's the same as drugs when we say that drugs are the solution to another problem, that drugs are not the problem. And I think it's the same way. It's not the video games that are the problem. It's more, what is the problem that somebody is trying to solve by being addicted to video games or any being addicted to anything. Yeah. Do you ever, do you ever see the show intervention on A and E? Okay. So the A and E channel has this, this show that's been on for God, probably 10 years Okay, called intervention and it, and it showcases addicts and it shows them using drugs and it shows them, you know, living their life. And then it, it shows 
um, an intervention occur, and then the end result is that they get into treatment. Um, one of the first, <laughs> one of the first episodes was someone being intervened on for video game addiction. Interesting. Yeah, so it is a thing. Well, and another thing is like hoarding. Hoarding. Hoarding is another aspect of that. Well, hoarding. Sort of. I mean, in the biggest opinion on hoarding is that it's a mental illness. It's like a psychiatric something. Mm. And so. Well, then we they can treat just it give with, it they, drugs, they, well, right? Yeah, they end up treating it with medications <laughs> and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. So, I mean. Okay. I'm not, I don't really have much to say on hoarding. Um, is, is it addictive behavior? Sure. I yeah. mean, some people get really addicted to collecting things and it gets a little out of hand until all of a sudden, you know, uh, floor to ceiling in their house is filled with, you know, newspapers and garbage. Right. Right. Okay. But I've gotten totally off track of what yeah. we wanted to talk about. <laughs> you said last week, and I think this is a big, a, a really hot topic, as you said, which is, we're back to substance abuse now, but the difference between enabling and helping. And I think that it's huge. So you get to talk about what the differences are and how we deal with that. So, yeah. So one of the biggest um, things that parents are taught in regards to addiction when they find out their kid's an addict or anyone finds out a family member is an addict is, is don't enable them. That's what they're told initially by counselors, by therapists, by you know, substance abuse professionals don't enable them. So, and what does that mean? So don't enable them in my head means don't do anything to allow them to continue their destructive behaviors. Like give them money, like give them a place to stay, like bailing them out of whatever crisis situation they've come up against. Um, and you know, not to do all these things and to basically, you know, urge them to get help, urge them to get treatment um, but a lot of people and a lot of families take this not enabling thing way too far to a point where it becomes an, an, um, a, a desire to not help them. Right. And there's a huge difference between enabling and helping. And explain, so, explain yourself. Explain myself. Explain yourself. So, okay. So helping would be doing anything you can to get a person help, to get them into treatment, to get them to a place where they can sort out their addiction, where they can figure out what's going on. Like getting an interventionist yeah. or introducing them to a rehab program, preferably Narcanon. Right. But similar to like Derek was saying about his mom who consistently said, are you ready to do Narcanon? Are you ready to do Narcanon? And she continued to do that until he did. Right. And so helping would be getting a person any kind of help that they need to handle their substance abuse or to handle whatever problems they have. Enabling, and a lot of families do this, enabling is like, you know, when little Johnny comes home, you know, on Saturday and he got paid Friday and he, oh, his dog got sick and needed to go to the vet and uh, he had to loan his buddy a bunch of money and he had, uh, um, he had uh, whatever, the tires on his car popped and now he has no money. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He really needs drugs. And he made up a story and he goes to his parents and say, hey, I need money. And they're like, well, didn't you just get paid? And he comes up with all these excuses as to why he has no money. And so they give him money. Mm-hmm. And they keep bailing him out of these little crisis situations, real or imagined. Or, you know, the addict's addiction so far progressed, they can't pay their rent. And so mom and dad let them come home and live at home and do different things that aren't urging them towards getting help. So well, okay. does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And, and you're also, you know, we've talked about, sometimes we've talked about like, what are some of the indicators that a parent mm-hmm. could notice? 
And I think that's probably an indicator. I think you said it even, but just, you know, when your your kid is working and never has any money. Right. It's like you really have to take a look at where's that money going. Well, yeah. I mean, realistically, if a person gets paid on Friday, they should have money on Saturday. Yes. And realistically, if a person's not using drugs, they shouldn't have crisis situation after crisis situation after crisis situation pop up and like, oh, can you believe me? My house got, can you believe it? My house got robbed again. What do you mean again? Who gets robbed in two months? That right. was a story I told. Right. <laughs> so maybe if it happens once, fair enough. But if it starts to be some kind of a pattern, you could suspect that they were buying drugs. Any parent that gets a story from their, from their loved one that sounds fake, it probably is. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. We know when our kids are lying. Absolutely. I mean, come on. But here's the thing. A lot of families don't want to confront that. Mm-hmm. That's the reality of it. A lot of families don't want to confront that. So that actually links in to the enabling thing is, you know, you, you've got addicts that are in denial. Oh, I don't have a problem. Or I can quit anytime I want. I'm just, it's just a phase. I'll quit, you know, when it becomes like crunch time and I have to. But you also get parents that go into denial that their kid is a drug addict. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to look at it. They don't want to confront it. They don't want to believe it because how could it happen to my kid? I raised them better than that. You know, and I raised them with ethics and morals and all these things. Like, how can my kid now be an addict? And so they don't want to confront that. And so they will constantly bail them out of situations, give them money, give them places to stay, tell stories for them to cover up whatever's happening to like, so like other people don't try, start to catch on mm-hmm. to what's happening and do all these different things because the family is in complete denial that this is what's going on. That's what happened with my parents. Right. My dad told my mother, he said, Pam, he's obviously a drug addict. I mean, <laughs> look at what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's using drugs. And my mom didn't want to believe it. Right. Absolutely didn't want to believe it. And she would actually make excuses for me. Mm-hmm. to my dad and to other people as to why certain things were the way they were. My mom was my biggest enabler. Right. Um, and uh, a lot of kids and a lot of, well, kids, we're not kids, I'm 35. Right. A lot of addicts go through, you know, situations like that where you've got their parents that go into denial about it. And in my head, if you enable your child, you're going to kill your child. Right. Because... People don't realize when they're going through it that addiction is a huge life or death situation. Right. This is not like something to take lightly. This is something that you have to handle absolutely correctly so it doesn't end poorly for you. Well, you have two end results. You have either going through a rehab program like Narconon and getting clean and changing your life or you die. It's really simple. Or, or it's really up, black or white. Or you end up in an institution for the rest of your life. Where you might as well be dead. But sure. it's like it's not a... it. And the chances of the bad happening are way magnified when you're on drugs. Absolutely. I mean, I could walk down the street and get hit by a car, but the chances of something bad happening to me if I'm a drug addict, is it's like, you know, 80, 90% at that point. But I was going to say, being a mom, I, kn- I can just about bet that one of the reasons why a mom or a dad will do that is because they think they're a failure. As parents. I, yes, I would think I was a failure as a parent if that yes. happened with my kids. You know, now I know because my boys are grown that, you know, I taught them as well as I could. But 
ultimately they're responsible for their own condition. Absolutely. And I and I mentioned this too, I think, because I think Derek's mom was such a good example of someone who just kept saying, are you ready to do Narcanon and never gave up on him. And I think that even if even if you did fail, you know, even if you were so strict with your child and you never let them do what they wanted to do and you were just the most ruthless, disgusting, awful parent ever, so what? Now your kid has a problem and you need to shift gears and you need to get them help. And here's the thing. No parent is responsible for the fact that the kid became an addict unless they shot the kid up with drugs themselves. Which I I mean, it happens. Yeah. Believe it or not. Yeah, as sick I, as that I, is, it happens. I know. Um, for the for the masses, you know, no parent's responsible for the kid's condition. That's right. The kid's responsible for that. He made his own choices, he made his own decisions, he made his own judgment calls, and ended up, you know, in the position that he's in. Right. No parent is directly responsible for the fact that their kid became an addict. And it's embarrassing for a lot of families. And mm-hmm. and, and parents start, like you said, they start to feel as, as fail, like failures. Right. Like they failed at raising their child. Like, you know, my parents raised me with ethics, with morals. I knew the difference between right and wrong. And I still chose a different path. It had nothing to do with them as parents. It wasn't a reflection on them. It was a reflection on me. Right. It was a refl- reflection on what I was dealing with. And what, to me, the most pro-survival thing I could have done at the time is use cocaine. Right. In my head. Because it helped you. You thought it helped you. As twisted as that is. Yeah. And so, along with the denial of families to, you know, them not wanting to believe that their their child's an addict, it's also the fact that a reason they don't want to face it is because they think that also equals the fact that they failed as a parent. Right. Here's the thing. There's no book on how to raise kids. That's right. Every parent does it differently. Um, every parent has their own parenting style, and every parent you know, does the best that they feel they can for their child. And if they, became, they, if they become an addict, the best thing to do is look at that for what it is. Exactly. Look at that for what it is and say, okay, my kid is struggling. He needs help. And that's where you start urging them into treatment and you stop enabling. Right. Because enabling, like I said, you know, I think it was like five minutes ago, enabling is going to kill an addict. Right. Because if you constantly give them money, knowing they're going to get drugs with it. Right. um, If you constantly. Why not just go buy the drugs yourself? Say, I I, I can get you a better deal. I'll go buy it for me. Some parents, some parents will actually take their kids into the, into the ghetto so they can buy drugs. Why? Because they're going to be as in the in the parents' head, they're going to do it anyway. They just want to protect them while they go into a shady neighborhood. Wow. I've heard that a few times. Wow. Parents will actually drive them to get it. I, be, kid, I'm, addicts, I'm like speechless. <laughs> addicts are real manipulative. Because here's the thing. If there's something that you need that you feel helps you survive better, you're going to do anything you can to get it. And you get to the point where you don't care what you have to do or who you have to manipulate or who you have to convince or whatever, you're going to do everything in your power to obtain whatever that thing is for you yep. to help you survive better. And, you know, there's people that would sell their mom into slavery for one more hit. That's how much of a grip these drugs get on people. Yep. <laughs> Everyone should see the face. You <clears throat> <I'm just> like, <laughs> it makes you cringe a little bit. It really does. Yeah. Um, but, you know, enabling... Enabling equals death in my book. Right. Because if you give them money, like I said, you're giving them a place to stay 
when they can't, um, you know, support themselves anymore. And the families are constantly giving them a safety net. The addict is never going to get to the point where things get so bad that they're going to say, either I take this help or I die basically doing what I'm doing. Right. Basically not enabling is to get the addict to a point where they'll, they'll be willing to take help. Because, you know, you have a lot of families out there that know their child's an addict, that offer them treatment. The addict flips them off and says, you know, screw you guys, I'm not doing that. And the family still gives them money and still lets them stay in the house and still lets them do all these different things knowing what they're doing. Right. And the fact that they're refusing help. Right. See, cutting off the, the family's like financial ties and things like that are to urge the, the, um, the addict towards getting help. Right. Okay? Right. Now, helping is different. Right, and sometimes you know families take this like in the this inability, or not inability, this want to not enable, and they take it way too far. So where they won't even help. So yeah, yeah, it becomes an inability to help. Right. So families will take this to the point of like, we're not going to pay for treatment, we're not going to you know do anything, we're not going to pay your health insurance, we're not going to do any of this stuff. You can go to a state-run detox and a state-run facility. Go there for you know two or three weeks and, and and figure it out, and that doesn't do any good for the addict either. Right. Unfortunately, and I say this because it is unfortunate, is that we're in a day and age where good treatment you're going to pay out of pocket for it. Good treatment costs money because you have to be able to pay for the services that they're offering. When you go to a state-run facility, you're getting the most minimal help imaginable. Right. Because you're going to a place that this government subsidized that is run by very, very underpaid and overworked, you know, workers right. that don't really want to help, that really have no interest in it. And they're just doing their menial government job for, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and whatever kind of miserable existence they have and not really taking interest in helping an addict. Right. Oh, my goodness. And I have to sidetrack for a second. Did you read the article of the two drug counselors? That overdosed? That overdosed? I did. On opioids? Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. Happens. Uh, uh, oh, my goodness. Sorry. It sidetrack. happens. I've, I've seen, I've, I, I've read stories of interventionists doing an intervention on an addict and relapsing with, with, the, with the addict. Because the addict convinces them, no, Jeez. this is really where we need to be. Right. <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, at state-run facilities, for the most for the most part, you get subpar treatment. Right. And like I said before, it's unfortunate, but good treatment does cost money out of pocket because you're you basically get what you pay for. Yeah, but you know, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, yeah, you know, you got to pay for the treatment, and you know, uh, Narcanon's not free. You have to pay for Narcan. But what does an average addict spend a week? And average, it depends. I mean, I was the type of person that spent five hundred dollars a day, right, on drugs, right. So that's twenty five. That's no, that's thirty four, thirty five hundred, thirty five hundred dollars a week on drugs. On drugs, most of which I stole. Right. Be, so, I'll be honest about it. Most of that money is something that I did something completely illegal to get. Right. Well, same thing with parents. Like, how much money have you given your kid? How how much are you spending? To, you know, enable them. And could you put that money into a decent rehab program? And the answer to that is, heck yeah. Do you know what an average funeral costs? Mm, No. It's in the ballpark of $30,000 or $40,000. Okay. So which would you rather pay for? Would you rather pay for rehab? Would you rather pay for funeral costs? That's kind of a no-brainer for parents. 
You'd think it would be. Yeah. Um, some parents say, you know what, we're at the point where we'd rather them die. Yeah, but that's and because... That's, that's disgusting to me. Yeah, but that's... When a family be- says that because they're in such apathy about what's going on. But that's because they don't know that there's a program that can help them. True. They're, it's just because they don't know. Well, one thing I was going to say, too, in terms of enabling is, you know, I was talking about the parents who were thinking like, oh, you know, it could never be my son or, or I'm a failure. Whichever road they're going down in terms of not really confronting it, that's enabling right there. Absolutely. Until you go, you know what? You are a drug addict, mm-hmm. and we need to get you some help. Right. It, just not confronting that fact is a form of enabling, right. I think. We're, we're, at, we're at a point in society where, I mean, we have more people addicted to drugs now than ever. Yeah, I believe it. And so parents really need to pay attention yep. to their kids in the way of, like, are, you know, are they using drugs? You know, I want families to really be aware of what some of the signs and symptoms are of drug use. So if they notice it in their child, they can start taking steps in the right direction to get it handled before it goes way too far. I mean, nowadays, there's so many overdoses resulting in death every single day across the country uh-huh. that it's not, it's not, everyone's always, <laughs> a lot of families think it's never going to be my kid. It's never going to be the, that close to home. It's always going to be someone else, you know, over there. Um, and that's not true. Right now, it could happen to anybody. That's right. And, there, and because there's so many people getting addicted to drugs, that it could absolutely be your son. It could absolutely be your daughter. It could also be your husband or be your wife. I mean... Yep. I was not- telling these people last night about Derek and how did Derek get introduced to drugs? 12 years old on a Boy Scout trip. And they were right. both, they were all like, what? I'm like, yeah. So what do you do? You have to teach your kids and you have to teach them on a regular basis but that's not the way to go. But give them real facts, too, as to why. But you also have to teach your kids that, obviously, drugs are bad. Right. You should not use drugs. Right. But if you do, tell us because we'll help you. Yeah. That's true. That's a good point. That's what my parents said. Yeah. For years. When they were starting to suspect, but didn't have any you know, hard evidence, mm-hmm. they said, Jason, if you're using drugs, tell us. We're not going to be mad at you. We'll, we'll get you help. Right. And so, you know, that's and did the you way- tell him? No, no, <laughs> no, not for years after that. I remember that conversation. It's funny. I remember exactly where I was sitting and where I was when my dad said that to me. And as a trickle of blood was coming out of my nose, I said, no, dad, I'm fine. It's I'm not really using drugs. I mean, everything, everything. No, I'll let, I'll, let, I'll let you know. I'll, I, just, I will absolutely let you know if I just I, if have I a random nosebleed going. Yeah, on, Dad. I said I'll absolutely let you know if I need help. As blood trickling out of my nose, and I had been up for two days, and I feel terrible about that because I could have saved me, my, you know, myself and my parents a ton of heartache and a ton of money had I taken help at that moment. Right. And sometimes it's hard for an addict to confront the fact that they've lost control. That. What started off as something they did on the weekends is now completely in control of their lives. It's hard to wrap your brain around that to some degree because you never you never think it's going to happen to you. You never think that uh, a powder or a pill is going to actually take control of your entire life. And then it becomes a shameful, embarrassing thing. And so you kind of stick it, stick it away, don't look at it, um, and keep doing what you're doing um, until things get way too bad. Yeah. And things do get bad quick. And so, you know, any family out there that's listening to this that um, 
that thinks their son or daughter, husband or wife, whatever, is using drugs, they probably are. You never assume someone's using drugs for no reason. Right. You never, you're never suspicious for no reason. You there's have an indicator. There's something that's not quite right. Something's not right. Something's yeah. going on. And the best thing to do is confront them and offer help immediately. Right. If they refuse help, that's when you start the not enabling thing. That's when right. you start pulling things back, you know, to get the addict to realize that they need help. Because an addict is never going to get help if they think they can continue using successfully. Right. Does that make sense? With no consequences. With no consequences. exactly. So if they can continue snorting coke or shooting heroin or or taking God knows how many pills every day, and there's never going to be a consequence for it, they're not going to stop unless something real terrible happens like, they overdose and die and get brought back. Right. And then they're in a hospital. Or they slit their wrists and they, they get sent to a mental hospital. Or they slit their wrists. Or they end up in a crack house being held hostage. Oh, that sounds oddly familiar. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, unless something really bad happens, if an addict thinks they're going to continue to use it with no consequences, they're going to. Right. They're going to keep using. And so I always tell families, you need to start imposing consequences, especially after you offer help and they say no. That's where you really need to start imposing consequences because... Because anything else is enabling, basically. Aside from helping them get to rehab, anything else you do is enabling them. And enabling them also comes in the form, like I said, of of not dealing with it, not confronting it, and just letting it go. That's another huge enabling point because... You have to face it. Yeah. You have to look you have to look at what's going on. Yeah. Um, you know, I there was a there was a student that came through Narconon. Mm-hmm. We were just talking before about how we got introduced to drugs. There was a um there was a student that came through Narconon's grandmother is the one who introduced them to drugs. Oh, we were talking before about like parents didn't like shoot their kid up or give oh, them yeah, drugs yeah, in the yeah. first place. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, there actually are times where that happens and we actually had a student that's grandmother was their drug dealer. Wow. Yeah. And so it's like that becomes a real sticky situation when it's like that close to home. And the parents didn't know. Did the parents find out as a no, result? The parents thought that this person just loved to hang out with grandma. But is did the did the student? But the student went through yeah, Narcanon. Yeah, the student so. went through Narcanon, and it finally came out in the wash. Um, and then we helped them deal with that. See, part of getting a person off drugs is figuring out what got them on drugs to begin with. Right. You can't rehabilitate a person's you know addiction without pinpointing where it came from, why yeah. it started, um, and realizing what needs to happen in order for the person to continue to live a drug free life. Right. Um, and so. You know, finding the underlying root causes is real important. And and during those counseling sessions is when you find out stuff like this. Um, And and so you had to sit down with the parents, obviously, and say, this is where he got it. There's a whole familial intervention that was done. Yeah. And was his grandmother still around? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And did she admit it? Did... Did, did was she part of the family intervention? Did I don't, they all I don't, just kind of go, I don't know if the we're done with you. Ever admitted to what was going on, but we actually helped this person deal with that whole situation wow. and handle the grandmother. Um, and the fact that the family didn't know it, it took a lot of work. Yeah, but um, those are one of the many things that come up in these counseling sessions um, when they're trying to get to the core root of everything. Is like sometimes you do find out it is a family member that got them started on drugs. 
Right. And so it's sticky stuff like that. But well, I don't know. I, I guess digress. I could think with like a brother or a sister or whatever, but a grandmother? I mean, grandmother. I am a grandmother and I'm like, ooh. And could you imagine giving your kid no. Oxycontin? No, never. Or your grandkid Oxycontin? No. 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 But, uh, but what's unimaginable to us is other people's realities. Right. As some, you know, somewhere in the world. Right. And so, you know, the whole the whole debate with enabling and helping um, is something that's been going on for quite a while. My family, like I was saying before, were huge enablers. Right. Um, you've got my dad saying, hey, Pam, I think he has an addiction. And my mom just giving me money, bailing me out of situations, doing all this stuff. But she thought that's what would be most helpful to me. Right. But in reality, it allowed me to continue my addiction. Um, but I was the type of person that never said no to rehab. Mm-hmm. Because things would get so bad for me, as soon I would ask for help and they would give it to me and I'd go off to whatever rehab center and um, you know try to get clean from that point. But there's a lot of people out there that are completely resistant to the idea of treatment. And it's, it's because of this. It's because when you send an addict to rehab, you're kind of taking away their security blanket. Right. And drugs are their security blanket because, you know, back to what we used to we say before, you know, drugs are a solution to a life problem that they can't solve by any other means. Right. And so you're taking that drug that solves all these problems away from them. And so you're basically taking their security blanket away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's scary for a lot of addicts. That's terrifying. Yep. That you're going to take away the very thing that helps me deal with life. I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to treatment. You know, enough of that. That's that's fine, but I'm not going to do that. Right. Um, you know, some addicts start using so early in life that they never got a chance to, like, grow up and learn ordinary life lessons that other people get to learn. And, you know, as they grow up and, you know, fall down, pick yourself back up, dust yourself off, and figure things out by trial and error. Right. A lot of addicts don't get to learn those valuable life lessons. Right. And so because they start using so early, they don't even get to figure out who they are mm-hmm. before an addiction takes over. And so you get a lot of addicts that come into treatment and, and, and they tell you, they're like, I don't even know who I am. I've been using drugs since I was 12. Right. And now I'm 29. Right. I don't even know who I am if I'm not an addict. If I'm not this person, that sole purpose in life is to go and use drugs and buy drugs and do all these different things in the world of addiction. You know, you take that away from me, I, I've got nothing. Wow. I mean, like, yeah, like, what is my goal in life? My goal has just been to get more drugs and to get enough money so that I can get more drugs. And so right. if I don't have that, what is my goal? What do I want to yeah, achieve in life? Exactly. Wow. And so that's why rehab is so scary for a lot of people is because you're threatening to take all that away from them. Right. And so that's when, you know, interventions become really important. And, um, you know, any families listening, we uh, Narconon does offer intervention services. Right. Um, and, and they don't cost anything additional other than the travel and airfare to get the people back yep. to the center. That's, a, um, that's good to know. And so interventions become hugely important because when families offer their loved one rehab and they say, uh-uh, no way, and they're out the door, they take it as a loss. They're like, right. well, now what do we do? I tried, and now what do I do? Right, well, might as well just, like, they'll figure it out, I guess. Yep. And that's go. not the best way to, it's not the best thing to do. Right. The best thing to do is to do an intervention. Um, interventions 
can get an addict's agreement to go to treatment when the family can't. See, the thing is, is like when the family confronts their loved one about being addicted, they're very highly emotionally involved in the situation. And they're, they're not a neutral outside party that's objectively looking in on the situation and giving their two cents about it. But an inter- interventionist is. And so right. you need sometimes you need a person that's not so emotionally involved in the situation to come in and kind of objectively view everything and say, okay, this is what needs to be done. And then work with the addict one-on-one and get them to agree to go to treatment when it was, a lot of times they'll be successful and the family wasn't. Right. And right. so I don't There's want- way too much history there with the too addict much. and the family. There's just on both sides, you know, mistakes made on both sides and what have you and withheld communication and wrongdoings and upsets. And I can totally see how I don't. Yeah, I can totally see how we take a, th- a third, you know, uninterested party to come in and sit down and say, you know, I got I got nothing on anything. But let me tell you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so I never want a family to give up trying to help their loved one just because they come up against like a stop. Mm-hmm. or a, a roadblock or a barrier. Right. Um, they, you know, people need to know that there are solutions to that and that if your loved one isn't willing to do treatment, intervention services would be necessary. And so I don't, my, my reason for saying this, I don't want a family to ever stop trying to help their addicted loved one. Right. Because once they stop trying to help them, it's a death sentence for them. Right. Because, because nobody else is going to. No one else is going to. No one to. else is going to do that. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. And again, I come back to Derek's story, and his mother never, ever, ever gave up on him right. going to Narcanon. Consistently said, are you ready to go to Narcanon? You know? And, and if she he, hadn't done that, he he wouldn't have ended up there, you know? If she hadn't done that, he'd probably be dead. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he came extraordinarily close. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, I guess the moral behind everything I'm saying is like, don't stop helping. Right. Don't stop helping, don't stop helping, don't stop helping. But do stop enabling. Do stop enabling because enabling will kill as much as not helping. Right. And if you're not sure whether you're enabling or helping, you know, you could always, uh, they could call you and ask you and say, this is what's going on. Yeah, I was going to say that. If any family out there has this situation and they're really confused, call me over at the center. Right. I'd be happy to talk about it with you, hear about what's going on, um, and get you on the phone with a counselor who can help you kind of sort the situation out the best way for everybody. I know we give the number at the end, but I'm going to give it right now because we're talking about it. It's 877-339-3324. Did you tell me your mother had started a group? No, no, she's part of a group. She's part of a group. She's part of a group and she helps um, kind of head up the internet version of it, I guess in Florida. It's it's an online forum and they also have in-person meetings in Massachusetts, and I think they have some in Fort Lauderdale. It's a support group for parents of addicts. Okay. Or family members of addicts. And it's called Learn to Cope. Learn to Cope. So it's learn. They, they can go to learn the number two cope. It's either .com or .org. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but that's a good online support network for, for families. Right. Because nothing feels more... A, a parent, a set of parents never feels more alone than when they're dealing with an addicted child. Right. Because whatever's happening, you feel like is only happening to you guys. And you don't want to tell anybody yeah. and you don't want to share it because mm-hmm. it's, you feel ashamed, right? I mean, right, wrong, or indifferent as a parent, you feel kind of ashamed. You know, we, we, 
we brag about our kids all the time right. when they're little, you know, my and my granddaughter. I mean, forget about it. She's the most beautiful, smartest person like ever existed. Right. You know, so you figure you've got a family who has a, you know, a child that's an addict and you're not going to tell people. You don't want to tell people, you know, and so you're like, you're stuck with it kind well, of. Yeah, you, know, you kind doing... of go it alone. Yes. And so this is this learn to cope uh, network is a great tool for parents to actually, you know, open up and talk with other parents who are also going through the same thing. Right. And so at least there's, you know, there's tons of support groups for addicts. This is a great support group for families. Right. Does your does your mom promote Narcanon? She's mm-hmm. not allowed to. Oh, okay. On their, in their group, you're not allowed to promote okay. a specific treatment modality. Okay. But like in person, my mom will absolutely rave about Narcanon yep. to anybody that'll listen. And we can promote it. We can promote so it. So anybody listening, you can call that number because we know that it works. Right. It's interesting. And it's an. It, it's really... I can really see how it would be kind of a tough thing for a parent because you could potentially think that you don't want your son to go hungry or homeless and so or daughter and so you you give them a place to stay but not the best thing when they're addicted just not not at all, not at all. the best thing to do is get them into treatment right and get them into treatment that will work right you know i hear families that are like well we're not going to pay for treatment we've hemorrhaged you know so much money on the addiction thus far they can go to like a free or state funded detox or rehab and they need to figure it out because it's, it's a decision and they make the decision to use, they can make the decision to stay clean. And now that's a really simplistic viewpoint on addiction. Mm -hmm. When a person's physically addicted to drugs, they cannot make a decision to not use. Right. Because while the drugs are still in their system, they're going to have cravings. They're going to have obsessions about using, they're going to have drug dreams and they're going to still be very mentally clouded. Right. So what do you say to a parent when they say that to you? Like, we're not going to pay for it because we've already paid for all these other programs and we've already given them all this money and he's just wasted it on drugs or whatever. What do you say to the parents? I tell them I completely get that because I do get that. Right. I completely understand it that a family has spent most of their time, sweat, blood, tears, and money on handling the addict. But at the end of the day, how are they going to feel if they refuse to pay for good treatment and then they die? Right. I mean, that's not something I don't I don't think any parent wants on their conscience. Right. That they had a good solution and they had an opportunity for good treatment and they chose against it because of principle. Right. And then if, if they say to you, well, how do I know that this program's going to work? How do I know? Do you just show them like um, graduates and such and different stories or... I- when a family says, that, and people say this quite often, well, how do I know this is going to work? There's no 100% guarantee. Well, if you've I'll already say, paid for a bunch of rehab programs, if I had already paid for a bunch of rehab right. programs, that would be my question. How do I know right. this one's different? How do I know this one's going to work when those didn't? Because generally speaking, Narconon's completely different than any other rehab out there. So no one out there has ever done a, a rehab that's sort of like Narconon. Because right. It doesn't exist. Right. You have 12-step or you have Narconon. Right. That's true. And... The twelve, you know, the twelve step modality works great for some people. It absolutely does, but there's a vast majority of people it doesn't work for. And so most of the people, and I say most, I say like ninety five percent of the students that come to Narconon, it's not their first rehab. Right. They've been to four, five, six plus. Right. You know, other uh, treatment centers that failed to help them, 
And the common denominator is that all those rehab centers were either psychiatric based or 12 step based. Right. And it didn't work for them because it didn't handle their cravings. It didn't clear their mind up. It didn't help them, you know, change the way they think about life. And it didn't find the root of the, of the addiction. Right. You know, I'm the type of person, I'm a very non-religious person. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not huge. I'm not a huge like God freak. Right. Um, and wasn't raised like that. And in 12 step, one of the things is that you get kind of that God concept jammed down your throat. And if you're not willing to like get literally get on your knees and pray to God that your, cra- that your cravings go away, you're not going to get it. And I had a sponsor tell me that. He's like, you have to get on your knees and pray. It's like, I was raised Jewish. I don't, we don't do that. And I don't really feel comfortable doing that. He's like, well, you better kiss your butt goodbye then if you're not willing to do it. Right. You have to be willing to do it every you need to do to stay sober. And I said, I don't think that's it. I don't think praying to something I don't know is up there that I don't use is going to keep me from using. Because I'm telling you, I'm about to go buy the biggest bag of cocaine I can possibly buy. And I'm going to swim my way out of it. Right. Um, and it, it just, I, it did. That's, that was my concept of it. And so, you know, it took the Narconon program to really like sort everything out to the point where it's like, good, I can stay sober now. Right. I don't feel like I need to use drugs. Right. Um, well, there's it, enough empirical evidence that the drugs lodge in the fatty tissues of the body. Right. And when you do the sauna program, they sweat out. And until you do that, you have a potentiality for more cravings every time the, the fat cells break down. Mm-hmm. So I'm not dissing faith. I think faith is a very, very strong sure. thing. Right. But I think, and I, and I think a lot of people, you know, go through the sauna program, they still have a lot of faith because... You know, you you if you ha- even even the Bible says God helps those that help themselves, sure. and so if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, you're gonna go through the treatment program that's gonna actually help you with that. Yeah, if there was ever a time where I believed in the concept of God or anything, it was after sauna right. when finally I felt the way I did. I said, well, maybe there is something bigger than me out there that you know working this whole thing. I remember having that realization, right? Um. You know, I don't think religion has a place in, in recovery. I don't think and so either. Someone, and getting someone clean. I don't think that really, that's oh, this is a whole other ball of wax. I know. Take, we should have another one. We can, we can save that, that for next week, actually. Because, uh, yeah. We can start talking forever. But it all comes down to it. Back to your original question. When a family is paid for a bunch of treatment and it's like, how are you different? It's like, we're narking on. You've never done anything remotely like this. And so families nearly need to be willing to do anything they can to get their kid clean. Right. Because otherwise, it's like, what, what are their options? Right. And the you? truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter what rehab program you've done. If you haven't done Narconon, then you haven't done the one that's got a 75% success rate. Right. That has an actual technology behind it that gets applied mm-hmm. and works 75% of the time. And, and that's a that's a huge percentage. It is huge because you told me that the twelve step programs typically have in the single digits, and that means you are way you are way more likely to fail at those rehabs. Yeah, eight to twelve percent success rate. So if you flip that around, you know you have a, 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 at least an eighty eight percent chance of failing. Right. And right. that's 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 not that's kind of that's. That's not a good number. No, it's not a good percentage at all. And so 75%, I could definitely put myself in a 75%. And and anybody listening, you can be in that 75% if you really want to get clean, you know? I, I enjoy being in that 75%. It's just actually an enjoyable percentage. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you're doing well. Yeah. 
I think we've made it clear that, you know, enabling is not the same as helping and um, helping is a good thing and enabling not so much. Not at all. We'll get together next week. We'll talk again. Okay. Okay. You got it. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 